Hi, I'm Chanel, agency owner, marketing coach, speaker, and your official human sunshine. I've been in marketing since 2009 and have run a successful strategy and content marketing agency since 2018. Jaded by my corporate life, I quit my job to travel the world and start my own business. I've learned so much in my business journey and I want to share it with you. The Sunshine Podcast for Women in Business offers marketing advice for industry professionals and inspiring stories for women netting life and business. If you love the podcast, please subscribe and share with someone who would enjoy it too. But for now, sit back, relax and enjoy your daily dose of sunshine. Hearts, it is Chanel here, your marketing coach and human sunshine. And I am delighted to bring you the very first episode of the Sunshine podcast for <laughs> women in business. And I thought, what better way to kick off the podcast than by speaking to a very dear friend of mine, Joe Kepler? Joe is a mom, an athlete, and someone who struggled with substance and alcohol abuse in her youth. After leaving a treatment center in 2019, she found a passion for ultra running and she's completed mammoth races all over the the country um, in South Africa, where she, like I am from. And Jo's story is really one of like massive strength, determination and resilience. And so I'm so grateful to have her on the show today and to have her share her story. So welcome, Jo. You're on mute. Hey, hey, Nal. I'm Chanel, as I know you know. And yeah, thank you so much for having me. And I'm really sorry. I was uh, already, and then my son barged in and he's like, Mom, the electricity's back on. <laughs> so, so for those of you who don't know anything about South Africa's load shedding, um, we have a beautiful country, but our country's finances are not very uh, well managed. And as a result, we have to cut electricity multiple times during the day, which is wildly inconvenient. So, um, but nevertheless, you've made it, you've made it. And um, I'm very excited for you to share your wonderful, unique story with the world. Thanks. So I don't know if I must just start like from the, the beginning. Um, I think that's an excellent place to start. Start, start from the beginning. <laughs> okay. So yeah, for me, I, um, yeah, I think from a very young age, I kind of always felt very like overly sensitive to, to things that were going on around me. And, um, it was almost like a sense of being overwhelmed because I felt like I just couldn't, I, I couldn't cope. But, you know, I was just extremely sensitive, but at the same time, always trying to, you know, put this front on that I, I had everything together and that I was confident. Um, anyway, I mean, ugh, long, along the line somewhere I think from the age of 11 I remember kind of having my first drink and you know we were all sitting around a table and the family were a glass of wine and it was pretty normal you know I come from a Greek family and um, I remember like all the other kids almost like spitting it out because they were like ill and I remember the first time I had a sip and I was like oh my gosh you know I feel like like I've arrived like mm. I felt like I had finally settled and 
then I proceeded to go around the table and down all the other kids' drinks. <laughs> um, and Classic yeah, Joe. So I had a very... <laughs> and the funny thing was, like, I had such a bad headache. Like, I remember feeling very nauseous. But all I wanted was that feeling again. Mm. You know, like, all I wanted was to feel, like, unobtainable and... Yeah, and, and I think that's the difference is between alcoholics and people who don't have drinking problems or who aren't addicts. And you don't ever really know until you have that drink and you feel that you have that feeling of like, okay, this is where I'm supposed to be. Um, because normal normally when you have a drink, you know, that's that's not that's not the feeling you get, you know. <laughs> mm. Um, and it becomes like this this place that you now just want to get to. And as I'm sure you know, and everyone knows, you know, drinking starts to lose its effects, drugs start to lose its effects, and you just need more and more and more in order to get to the same place that you had when you started. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it kind of was just then going into high school, downing like vodka, getting like really drunk, um, and, and yeah, just doing stupid shit. <laughs> And, um, yeah, going, then, you know, experimenting with drugs. And like I said, obviously, what I was using wasn't enough. So it was going on to stronger things. And, I mean, I think I was 15 the first time I tried cocaine. Mm. (laughs) And, um, yeah, I mean, I I was 14 junior school. By the time I got to high school, I just wanted to party and drink. And, you know, I didn't want to play a hockey match on Saturday because I was too hungover. So I stopped doing sports. And... Um, yeah, I mean, it just, it ended up taking over my life. And then by the time I was in matric, which is when I was 18, 17 or 18, I had developed bulimia. So, um, yeah, throughout my teenage years, it was basically just trying to get lost in external substances or external behaviors to make myself Mm -hmm. feel good. So Mm -hmm. it's constantly like reaching for something outside of me to make me feel good. Mm. Um, and and yeah it was just uh, by the time I finished school I went to Greece for a gap year and that's where it really like just spun out of control um, I lost so much weight I weighed like 45 kgs I ended up getting burnt by fire because I was so pissed and I ignited a flame on the stove I remember that anyway I, yeah no it was it was horrific I had like third degree burns on my arms and my chest and yeah my mom came to visit me and with that she brought me home and you know my my poor parents like they just didn't know what to do and the problem is with with this disease is that your family doesn't know what to do um because when you are an addict or an alcoholic you take your whole family hostage Mm -hmm. um and you don't even know you're doing it you know but it's just like that's the the modus operandi you know it's all about me and me feeling okay and yeah so they spent money for me to go to psychiatrists psychologists and for me there was no solution in that because then I was just overly medicated and still using external substances to make myself feel good yeah um uh I then fell pregnant with my son when I was 20 and Obviously, I stopped everything because I wanted to have a healthy child. And I also thought, well, now here's my chance. You know, maybe this is what I need to stop to sort out my life. Mm. Um, 
you know, I breastfed for six months and I stayed on track. And as soon as I stopped, I went out to a party and I used again. And I kind of started from where I just left off when I had stopped using, you know, the 15 months prior. And yeah, it just spun out of control. And my son was about 10 months old. And I thought, no, I can't do this. I need help. And I went into my first treatment center. And, and like, I remember the, the first two weeks, you couldn't speak to your, like anyone from your family. And I remember they had like this pay box phone. <laughs> and I remember the first time speaking to him and, you know, in his little voice, he was like, mommy, mommy. And I, I burst into tears and I was like, I'll never, ever do this again. Mm. And the most crazy thing is, is that six weeks after leaving that treatment center, I relapsed and I drank again and I got pissed drunk. Um, and, you know, for the next few years, I kind of was like on and off, on and off. Like I met my husband and I was like, well, you know, now I've got the family, I've got the house, I've got everything. Let me just keep my shit together. And I was kind of like, you know, on the verge of that, like complete, like drinking to, to completely numb myself. And then also keeping things together to present a certain version of myself to, you know, family and friends. And then by 2018, I had a car accident because I had a seizure while I was driving from your know, drug use and meds. Um, I went into my second treatment center and there I was also just put on loads of meds. Um, went out and just yeah, relapsed again. Um, and then by 2019, I probably hit my rock bottom. And yeah, I just, I actually wanted to die. I didn't want to live anymore. And I remember saying to my husband that I'm going to help you find a wife because your taste in woman is not great. <laughs> and um <laughs> And I was like, I want a nice stepmom for my child. Aww. And he was like, are you okay? He's like, that's crazy. How can you talk like that? And I said, no, like, this is what I'm going to do because I know I'm going to die soon. Um, and, you know, it was so weird because when I was young, I used to have this dream that my dad and my cousin were carrying a coffin and they put it in the ground. And they, I would read the tombstone and it said, Iowana Eleftherio, which is my real name. And it said 1988 to 2018. And I had like this recurring dream like every year. And it was so weird because it was almost like I did die in 2018. <laughs> you know, it was, uh, I surrendered, I gave up. And yeah, by the grace of something much bigger than me, uh, I met the right person who helped me and guided me and, I went into a treatment center where, you know, that program was based on AA 12 steps. So it wasn't medicating. It was like saying that you you, you are the problem and that mm -hmm. um, you're the only way to kind of solve it. They call it a spiritual malady, actually. That's what addiction is. Um, and the only way you can solve that is by being of service to other people and also admitting all your wrongs. Um, it was really funny because like the first time I went there, they put my name on a board to do like um, duties and I had to sweep and I didn't do it. And so the one guy called me and he's like, um, your name's on the board to sweep. And I said to him, 
um, I don't have to speak. I'm paying to be here. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I love that. So then I was like, had two duties every day. (laughs) So... So this yeah. is sort of like the turning point of your journey because this is the treatment center that really turned things around for you. But if we go back to the beginning of your story, when you started to realize that maybe alcohol was different for you than what it was for other people, what are sort of like the warning signs that you have an, an unhealthy relationship with alcohol? Because I know that for me, while I'm not an alcoholic, um, it's it's very much part of our culture today to pretty much drink every day, especially if you're a business owner like me, you know, you work hard all day and then the the drink at the end of the day is is your reward. Um, and I've Googled a couple of times, how do you know if you're an alcoholic? And generally they say if you're hiding it from people and if you're drinking all day and all night um, mm-hmm. and if it's affecting your relationships and it's really affecting your health, then it's a problem. Um, so that's when I was like, oh, okay, good. I'm, I'm not. So I am a bit dusty today because I drank a whole bottle of Chardonnay last night, but that's that's neither here nor there. So what are like, what are some of the warning signs for people? Or is it different for, for everyone that they might be abusing substances or alcohol? So, no, I think it's pretty common and it's pretty spot on what you said about hiding it because it becomes a something that is attached to shame and guilt. So, you know, I believe your secrets keep you sick. And it's exactly that. It's like this big secret because you can't cope with life on life's terms and you have to drink to actually feel okay, Mm. to not feel like you want to kill yourself. And, mm-hmm. and like that's how bad it becomes and I think that's the difference is ex- it's exactly what you read it's about not keeping it a secret so like yeah you drank a whole bottle of Chardonnay last night but like you're saying it now you know it's, mm-hmm. it's not you're not ashamed of it you're not like you're not hiding it in a like sippy bottle <laughs> sippy cup whatever <laughs> um and yeah that that's the difference with an alcoholic or an addict they're like hiding everything and they're presenting a version of themselves that is not real like you desperately want it to be real but but it's not and mm. yeah I mean I mean I remember I couldn't go to an event without drinking first mm. even though they would be drinking there I, I would need to have a few drinks just so I could have conversations with people <laughs> yeah yeah that's 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 yeah. tough. Um, yeah. You also, Joe, mentioned like that it's really tough for the families, and no one is really given a handbook on how to 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 handle, deal with, or support um, a loved one who might be struggling with substance abuse. So, like, what tips would you give to um, you know families who maybe are experiencing this with a loved one? Um, because it seems like I know your parents, and they're wonderful wonderful people um and I think they handled it pretty well considering it was new territory for them but what sort of tips would you give to families dealing with someone a loved one who's struggling so I think my parents they did deal with it to the best of their ability but you know it was to their detriments um and that is the trick it's not so much to help the addict or alcoholic but it's to protect yourself as the family Mm -hmm. member and for that, what I suggest, it's called Al-Anon. So you get Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, and then you get Al-Anon, which is actually for family members. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of literature out there and they have meetings. And, you know, that literature is about um, detaching with love. So it's not, 
letting that person's stuff become your stuff, you know, not feeling guilty about it, mm. not enabling bad behavior, not protecting it. Um, and yeah, like I said, there's a lot of literature out there and, and that would be my first suggestion is go look up Al-Anon mm. and, and look the steps there. And your relationship with Leo, who absolutely adores you, and um, Joe's son Leo is a very handsome young boy, and he yeah he, he adores Joe. Um, how was it rebuilding that relationship? Um, or was there anything to be rebuilt? Because I suppose that's that would have been tough. Yeah, so I mean, this this part is like where I always get a bit emotional because um, yo um. When I left for treatments, by that time, so Leo was, so that was 2019, four years ago, Leo was eight years old. Mm-hmm. He he had no respect for me. Like, he pitied me. Like, I cried all the time. I was weak. Um, but I was, you know, he just, I could see it in his eyes. Like, he just was like, what is wrong with you? You're pathetic. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I'm not here to support you. You're supposed to be my mother. You know, he never said that, but I could see it in him. And, you know, after I left treatments and I started running and I started doing these endurance events and doing really well. And these are crazy events, like up in the mountains that that people don't finish. And like we were the only all female team to finish Drakensberg Grand Traverse. And it was hectic. It was in like these crazy storms and you know, through the years, what happened was Leo saw this totally different version of his mother, like this woman that was like strong, you know, and that was resilient and that, you know, can fight, not fight, not fight back. I don't like the word fight, but can, you know, so a big part of recovery for me is like service and helping people. And that's like talking to the person begging, um, you know, giving things where I can, and and trying to teach my son to do that. And and that for me is actually even bigger than the running stuff. Mm. Because from being a pathetic person that can't help anyone, yet learn herself. Like I've become someone that that is able to help others. And mm. I think for him, that's like, wow, you know, that's my mom. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um and uh yeah, so I mean it didn't happen right away. I, I think it must have taken a year. And part of my amends to the relationship and to my child was to allow that time to take place and not to rush it or try to force him to see the new me. Because I'd let him down so often in the past where I said I'd stop drinking and I didn't, that I couldn't expect him to believe me. It had to be through my actions. Mm -hmm. Sure. And I mean, I guess this is a good segue into now, you know, the the lighter part of the story, which is how you completely turned your life around. And now you're achieving absolutely incredible things with your with your running. And so I'd love for you to share, um, you know, I'm, I'm not privy to all of the names of the races and what they entail, but um, I've, I follow Joe on Instagram and I highly um, recommend that you do the same because she's actually an excellent uh, writer and I can see a book in your, in your future, Joe, but she <laughs> shares all of these fucking insane races that she does. And for someone who can't even run a kilometer without wanting to die, it's um, quite impressive. So, so talk to me about, what your life as essentially an incredible athlete is like and what you've achieved and and what you've learned by doing these races because the mental state that you have to get into to endure these these races is is quite immense so tell me a bit about that yeah so my first race was I actually entered Kaku 50 miler which is 80 kilometers and 
um, it was six months after I left treatments. And the month before, I did a 75K. And I thought, well, if I can do 75, why am I wasting my time doing an 80? Let me like, upgrade it to 100 miles, which is 160Ks. And it was an amazing experience because it started at night. And I finished in the day. Well, it actually went into the second night a bit. But on that run, I had my mom and my dad and Leo and uh, a very close friend of mine there and Dave and just all these people that had been there through my dark days. And it was very of like going through the dark to get to the light. And it was bloody hard and I was sore and I was pissed off. But when I finished, I was like, you know, I've been through so much pain, so much pain. And um, I, I, I got through it and it's all just a state of mind. And it's about putting one foot in front of the next, literally. Mm-hmm. And there, I must say there, there is a degree of like, okay, dopamine, serotonin, all of that when you run. Um, you know, there's no denying that. And I think I do still, although I'm clean and sober, like I still need to get my fix, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I think, yeah, through these extreme running events, I definitely get that. And I know that because at the end of the event, like I did, uh, then I did a desert run, a 210k desert run last year. Um, It was 46 degrees through the Karoo in February. And I remember afterwards, my mom and dad supported me on it. And afterwards, I remember getting this like, ha. And then the day, the day or two after having this very, like, this crazy low, and you know, it was almost like I'd gone and used, and then I was feeling the effects afterwards. Mm. But, you know, it's, it's a, I guess it's, it's not a chemical way. It's a more natural way, but, and I'm, I'm more aware of it. So now I know I'm going to hit that low after a run. So what I do, I, I, you know, I really throw myself into service. So you know, I'll do meetings like at the shelter, for example, or like I'll go help someone. And then that's a really good way to, you know, feel good again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I love the idea of, um, you know, for me, I feel like a lot of my purpose is to is to help others in, in whatever way I can. And I love that um, that narrative around around service because it does, it's so fulfilling for you and it's so helpful for others. So I think that's a perfect way to deal with the come down. <laughs> well, you know, they say in recovery, they say service keeps you clean. Like mm. that's one of our like logos. Um, but also I think for me, what's happened with my running, this is the way I see it. I am, I am talented and I'm not saying that in an arrogant way. Like I know I am because what I do is not normal, but the way I see it is, is like, I've been given this talent for a reason and it's because it's given me a much broader platform you know, when I do well in races, um, a lot more people are reached and know about me. Mm. And you know, that's then given me the ability to reach more people with my story. Mm. And, mm. you know, it's what I try to teach Leo. Like if you are given a talent or if you're good at something, you know, your higher power, mother nature, God, whatever you want to call it, has given you that so that you can help more people. Mm. And, you know, it's like that saying, it goes like with great power comes great responsibility yeah you know it, it's true if you have a talent use it but use it for good mm. like you are amazing at what you do you're good at reaching people and you know you have this podcast where you're interviewing someone like me 
And I'm sure there'll be other amazing people that you're going to have on your show that are going to help others, Mm. you know, and that's you using your talent to be of service. Yeah, yeah. Oh, she's so bloody inspiring, though. You make me want to cry. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And it's so true. And, you know, it really irks me when I see people like celebrities who who just appear to be doing sweet fuck all with all of the money that they have. And while it's not up to me (laughs) to, like, decide how, how Kim Kardashian should spend her money, it's... It really does irk me. Um, so that's that's a whole other podcast we could talk about. Um, so um, I'm conscious, Joe, that you've got to you've got to head off to to pick up your your lovely son. But I do just want to give the listeners like, um, are you like are you working on are you working towards any massive races at the moment? And do you have any like stories from any you know huge races that you've done where you really really were like put to the test or you really had to overcome that mental sort of not fatigue or whatever it is like just really what what was your toughest race so definitely I I know that like off the bat it was Drakensberg Grand Traverse it's called DGT and you can look it up and you literally traverse the Drakensberg from I think it's north to south if I'm not mistaken Mm. um and the Drakensberg, for those that don't know, is the most beautiful place, but super temperamental. The weather changes in a split second. It can go from like a 35 degree hot day to hail to minus two to snow, wind speeds that reach like 70 kilometers an hour. So that race was in November and we had the craziest weather, like mad storms at home. So you can imagine what was happening in the mountains. And that took us five days. We started on Tuesday and we finished on Sunday. I mean, on Saturday. Um, Nine teams started and five of us finished. And myself and my partner, Amri, were the only all-female team to finish. And it, it took us... 93 hours we slept five hours throughout the whole time and when I say five it wasn't a solid five it was like half an hour the first night three hours I think the third night and then only like an hour half an hour the last night and yeah we we didn't have a tent we had a thing called a bothy bag which is literally like a plastic bag you throw over yourself which did not keep the water out um I got super hypothermic my partner and I nearly headbutted each other um we we had a proper fight and then at the end we just laughed so much because she got super paranoid and thought that I drugged her because I gave her an anti-inflammatory and then she refused to follow me down the hill because she thought that I was leading her to the wrong place and (laughs) yeah no it was it was so bad like now we laugh so much about it but it was by far the the most difficult thing I've ever done in my life And it was just that cold. It was that cold, that constant cold and that wind. And, you know, it's self-supported. So you don't stop and sleep in a shelter. You don't stop and get a hot meal. You don't change your, like, you've got to carry everything on you. Yes. Um, So, yeah, that that was insane. I mean, they've changed the date for that race from November to September because the weather is just too crazy in November. Wow, Joe. I mean, it's it's just incredible. Um. And I think the the last question before we wrap up is like your story is really one of resilience and resilience is a topic that I'm so interested in. Um, and I always ask the question, which I don't know the answer to just yet, 
is do you think resilience is something that you're born with or do you think it's something that you can learn um because that that for for me like i'm interested from your perspective we are whether you think you were you were yeah. with the resilience to get where you are or whether you learned it along the way i definitely think it's learned and it's I do think your upbringing does make a bit of a difference, like the way your parents bring you up. But in the same breath, I've seen people who have been brought up very differently that have been, you know, what is, you know, they've had a very soft upbringing and they are very resilient. And for me, the answer is it's doing things every day that accumulates to, they're almost like building your own personal armor. Yeah. And it's like you're going into war, okay? And it's like, what armor are you going to carry with you when you go into war? Like, are you just going to have a sword? Or are you going to have, like, a chest plate and a helmet? And, mm. you know, you build those things by getting up and making your bed, by, you know, when you're having a shitty day, not being mean to someone, but actually just trying to understand where they're coming from. Mm. Um, by smiling at the person begging at your window, not ignoring them and pretend to be on your phone, mm. you know. <laughs> and that's a South African yeah. reference for those of you who wonder what yeah, it's like that's about. It's my worst. I can't like I hate it when people do that. I'm like, you know, if you're not gonna give the person money, just say hello. Like, don't yeah. ignore them. It's or, or, or like and, or like give them money and say don't don't buy drugs or don't buy beer. And you think, mate, if you are on the street, <laughs> you'd probably also want to get you know, fucked up. When I have a bad day, I want I want a couple of food. I know that's maybe not, not like what not you'd say, but I mean, like you're not gonna get a shelter or hot meal for bar brand. You yeah. will get drugs, and you yeah. will make you feel warm. So you know, it's like yeah, it's just those daily things. It's also you know people that say, oh, I really want to run a marathon, or I really want to do this. Like just get up and run for twenty minutes a day, or walk. Yeah. Yeah. You know. It's, you know, I want to be a, a more patient person. Get up and meditate. You know, it's like, I, sometimes I wake up at four o'clock in the morning, which is excessive, but I do that so I can do my little things that I have to in the morning so that I'm not a crazy person and just want to punch, like throat punch people. <laughs> I mean, you're... you're, you're just... Which I still get like sometimes. <laughs> well, you're only human. That's fair enough. Yeah, I mean, you look your, your mm. determination and resilience is is really so admirable, and I'm so proud of you for everything that you've achieved in your life and how you've managed to turn your life around. And I know the things that you're doing for other people um, is really going to make an impact in their lives and ultimately make a big impact in the world. So I'm so proud and, and grateful to call you my friend, and um, thank you so much for for sharing your amazing story. I hope it goes far and wide. Thank you, Nal. And yeah, I must say, I'm very grateful to have you as a friend. You are the longest friend I've had in my whole life. So um, I think through my behavior, uh, people came, you know, they came and went, but you have been there. So, um, you know, that means a lot. So yeah, oh, and many, <laughs> many more. I love you so much, Joe. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Sunshine Podcast for Women in Business. If you did, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You can also share this episode with a biz bestie who needs to hear it.